Hi, it's Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called, Yes, Your Special Needs Child Needs to Be on a Special Diet. Getting your kid's nutrition right is especially important if you have a special needs child. Otherwise, you'll just be making things harder on your child and on yourself. But according to Judy Converse, dietitian and author of Special Needs Kids Eat Right, The biggest hurdle that parents face when it comes to nutrition care is a lack of support and literature to help them along the way. So they try and do it on their own, but without knowing the right approach, they usually end up unintentionally making their child's symptoms even worse. Nutrition deals with a whole host of variables, chemical balances, allergies, intolerances, food sensitivities, etc. And every child is different, but there is a way to get things right, and in this audio interview, you'll learn how to do that. You'll also hear exactly where parents should start. Do this even before lab tests and supplements. You'll learn the truth about glutton-free diets and why some people don't see the kind of results they expect when they try to do it themselves. You'll learn the three kinds of bad responses people generally experience with foods and what to look out for with your child. You'll learn everything you need to know about the opiate excess theory and its effects on ADHD. You'll learn exactly where to go to find out the kind of up-to-date information about nutrition your special needs child needs. Hint, you probably won't get this from your doctor. You'll learn how to implement an action plan for your special needs child, especially if they're nonverbal and can't tell you where they're in pain. You'll also learn the kinds of roadblocks that usually get in the way in an almost foolproof plan for getting around them. There is no such thing as a child who doesn't respond to nutritional care. If you get nutrition right, you'll see a difference, and in this audio, you'll hear how to do that. Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best health-related interviews. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health issues, send them over to Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. Today we're talking with Judy Converse, who is a licensed registered dietitian and also has a practice in Colorado treating children. She has written a book called Special Needs Kids Eat Right. Judy, great to have you here with us today. Oh, thank you. So you kind of became interested in this on a very personal level. You had a child that had some special needs? Well, yes. When my son was born, he had pretty big issues with feeding, growing, eliminating, and, you know, there's nothing more fundamental to how an infant functions than whether or not they can absorb a diet, and that he obviously had a lot of problems with that, and I was a dietitian at the time, and I was very surprised to see that my providers didn't have any guidance for me at all. That really shocked me. My son clearly needed some intervening in terms of nutrition care, and I couldn't get anybody on board. I couldn't get any guidance for that. I have to say it was a lot more serious than colic. There were some neurological features that were very concerning. He had been hospitalized. He had had syncope and cyanosis, meaning he passed out. You know, this was not your garden variety colic. This was very serious. There was projectile vomiting. There was a lot of mucus in his stool. A lot was going on, and there were some questions about whether there were seizures, and we just could not get our provider's attention to really take any of that seriously. And I remember thinking, what do you have to do to a baby to get the doctor to pay attention? And we didn't live in a remote area by any means. We lived in the Northeast and had major medical centers at our access 
all that. So that was quite an eye-opener for me. And I could see that because of my training, which had really drilled me on how critical nutrition is in the first three years of life, I could see that this was a child that was not absorbing his diet normally. Something was wrong. And if I did not find a way to fix that, it could impact him developmentally. And the data on that is ancient. I mean, it's old. This is not new or novel. It's established. So that's the part that really surprised me that his pediatricians were not really aware of that data or how to apply it in practice. What did you do? I mean, you have this nutrition background. How did you start finding out these answers? Well, yeah, this was in 1996, so there really wasn't an Internet then, so to speak, and if there was, there wasn't much up there. So I did what people did in the olden days. I actually went to a library and started cracking texts and journals and looking for information about very young infants who show signs of inflammation from food or who can't absorb or tolerate their diet. I mean, my son was being breastfed. My training was that there is no such thing as a baby that doesn't tolerate breast milk. And if he or she does not, then what? There just were not tools around that that anyone was introducing me to. So after a lot of trial and error, I actually created a formula for him. And this is, of course, after we tried commercial formulas, which were very unsuccessful for him. And I asked the pediatrician, what did you guys use to do before you had commercial formulas in great arrays to choose from? I mean, you don't just let these babies die. And he had nothing to say other than these are just inconsequential comfort issues for your son and too bad. And I actually hung up on the guy and never called him back. I just thought, okay, I'm done. That's what prompted me to research even more. And I put together a formula that was based on goat milk. He absorbed that very nicely. And I've actually used that formula in practice a lot since then. There are kids who also do not tolerate that, and then it takes even more finagling to find the right food. But that kind of thing takes a lot of professional guidance. I wouldn't encourage a parent to go on that journey without some guidance. I mean, I was lucky enough to have my background to guide me. How's your son now? He's 12. I'm five, seven and a half. He's about to surpass me. He's doing great. He's just finishing up sixth grade. And I can't believe every night he grows a lot, it seems. He's doing really well. Wonderful. So your research paid off, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. It made a huge difference in his life when he was little. I don't think nutrition causes any of these things. Likewise, I'm not a psychologist, and I don't diagnose children for learning or developmental disabilities, and I don't presume to know anything about psychiatric medications that a psych MD would prescribe. That's not my gig either. So I think that's one part of the story is when there's discussion out there about these issues, you're asking the wrong people. (laughs) If you're asking how does nutrition impact this situation, you need to speak to somebody from that field, not a psychologist, not a teacher, because this is not their field. So the reality is, as I said before, nutrition is a science and practice in itself. You have to be licensed in most states to be practicing it. I mean, it's a valid science. It's not fringy. It's not alternative. It's been around for about a century or more. And we have very old, very robust data that shows that nutrition matters for children. And that's why we have federal programs like school lunch. You know, as much as you want to complain about a school lunch program, it exists because, and it has for decades, because if children don't get adequate intakes during the day, there's ample data to show that their functioning drops, their cognitive ability will drop. There's also 
lots of newer data showing how individual nutrients relate to learning. For example, girls seem to struggle more often with math learning disabilities in particular when their iron status is poor. So that is a real easy thing to rule out with a pediatrician, what is your child's iron status? If your child shows signs of poor iron status, which would be things like shiners under their eyes, irritability, paradoxically, kids who have poor iron status kind of wind up and get more irritable, more hyper, more reactive. They're pale and they have a lot of focus and concentration problems. Go fix it. It's easy to fix. You can't fix poor iron status with Trutera. So for somebody to say these things are totally unrelated is showing some, I think, pretty big blindness to the reality of physiology and nutrition in children. We've known for decades that nutrition impacts learning, growth, and development. And when you're talking about a special needs kid or a special learner, a kid with a learning disability, absolutely get the nutrition problems off the table because that's going to make their struggle all that much harder. Those are problems that will affect any child. Iron will affect any child. Low total calories will affect any child. If you have a child with a learning disability on top of that, it's going to be much harder. And I've witnessed this repeatedly in practice, that when you replenish these children correctly, they function much better. That's a much better place to start a psychiatric medication or if you want. There's no point starting one in a depleted child. You're really working against the current in that case. Like I said, there's American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, for example, been around a long time. The CDC has run an ongoing study called NHANES, which stands for National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, since around 1960, early 60s. They have a data set of thousands and thousands of children. They've monitored nutrition parameters. And if you were a psychologist, you would never have heard of this because this is not part of your training. And there's excellent data. That is a data set that is used and used and used in lots of research to cite how nutrition affects learning and development. So people who think this is new or think that it doesn't are just ignorant. They're just not informed, <laughs> if I could be so bold. For example, when you mention gluten-free diet, a lot of parents will say, okay, this didn't work. The thing about nutrition is there's kind of a funny disconnect when people talk about it because they're trying to make it work like a drug. So let's say you want to use Stratera. Great. Okay. There's before Stratera and after Stratera. That's one variable. Nutrition has as many as a dozen or two variables. There's all kinds of nutrients that you're working with. There's the variable of how does that child's intestine absorb this diet. There's all kinds of variables in the intestine that you have to control. I mean, it's literally a puzzle and a process. Nutrition care is a process. It's only as good as its weakest piece. A lot of people who try gluten-free diets for their kids don't put back equal or better value nutrition foods in its place. I meet a lot of parents who implement these diets with no supervision because they don't know where to turn, and they end up putting the kid on a pretty marginal diet. Okay, well, the impact of a chronically marginal diet in a child is going to be poor focus, more behavior outbursts, more difficulty with attention. So there you go thinking, gee, gluten-free didn't work. When, in fact, what might have happened if you had a gluten-free diet with all these other pieces intact, it might have worked really well. So getting some professional input on which pieces you need and which to do when, that's what this book is about. I take parents through that step by step. For more interviews on health, mind, body, and spirit, go to michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. Right. So it's not just about just taking this stuff out. It's you've got to put everything yeah, back yeah, in. Yeah. 
absolutely. There's so many issues that these kids tend to struggle with more often. Just in terms of gluten, kids with ADHD and autism, this is fairly recently emerging. They tend to have an immune response to gluten something like 70 or 80 percent of the time, whereas the general population has this maybe 5 or 10 percent of the time. And what we also know, and this has been in academic literature for 10 years or more, is that when you have an immune response to gluten, it's an autoimmune response in that it will trigger reactivity to brain tissue, and there's been pretty good research on that. So this is why a gluten-free diet for these kids might be very beneficial. It helps them with mood. It can lower anxiety, neurological tics ataxia, motor problems. These are all things that are already published in peer-reviewed journals. This is not new. This is not untested. I spend a lot of time on this in my practice. I think there are three kinds of responses, if you will, to foods that are recognized in medicine. And the first would be an allergy, a classic allergy. It's mediated by a little protein called immunoglobulin E, and that's when you see a pretty swift problem with a food. It could be hives, it could be wheezing, it could be vomiting, stomach aches, but you're going to see it real quick. And most parents know if their kids have an allergy. I mean, it's obvious. And most of the time, a pediatric allergist will test for that immunoglobulin response to food. What I encounter most of the time in the kids I see with autism, ADHD, et cetera, is those are not usually positive. But what is positive is something technically called a food sensitivity. The next one down is intolerance. So a food sensitivity is mediated by a different protein from the immune system. It's called immunoglobulin G, and it reacts more slowly and more insidiously. So if your child reacts with this response, you're going to see kind of a malaise. It might not be dramatic. It might not even be noticeable. Your child may simply kind of always have some bloating, some gas, some reflux, some irritable stool, kind of low grade, kind of a weak or picky appetite, little shiners under the eyes, irritability, sensory irritability. You know, they don't like tags. They don't like noise or mood issues. So that's the clinical presentation of a food sensitivity. Pediatric allergists generally don't look at that. I'm not sure why because, once again, there's been data for over 10 years that an immunoglobulin G response will affect how a child grows and functions. That's peer-reviewed. It's published. I don't know why it's not in mainstream practice. It's not fringy. So you can test for those fairly reliably. There's ways to do that and reprioritize a child's diet with or without some of those foods. And then the last one down, which I mentioned earlier, an intolerance, usually refers not to an immune response necessarily, but maybe the child can't digest that food. That would be something like lactose intolerance, where you can't break down lactose in your intestine and it gives you gas and discomfort. So I think most people kind of lump all that into allergy. I've even seen notes from pediatricians saying lactose allergy, which is not correct. So it's pretty cut and dried. It's pretty straightforward. But again, it's not widely applied. And again, I don't know why, because it can be very effective to do that. It's called an opiate theory also. Can you explain that? Sure. Now, that would fall under the intolerance. So, and this has been kicked around for quite a while in the autism community that there are some food proteins that are not digested 
completely. And this is secondary to you don't have enough digestive enzyme around or you have other problems with the gut, but you end up absorbing wheat or dairy protein in large fragments rather than teeny tiny individual building blocks of the protein. And as it happens, those fragments can be absorbed and look an awful lot like what our brain receives at the endorphin receptor site, so those feel-good chemicals that we make when we exercise or laugh or what have you, these little clumps of food proteins can be absorbed in a form that hooks onto those receptors. They're very addicting. They are measurable in urine. And this is the big dramatic shift you can see in kids on the spectrum once you replace those with some other foods or even with individual building blocks of proteins called amino acids so that they don't even have to digest at all and they just have these available to make neurotransmitters, which is what those are supposed to do. And that's presumably what does not happen when you're not digesting your protein all the way down. So the other thing about this opiate theory, that's why they're called opiates because they resemble opiate-like compounds and they're addicting like opiates and they can interfere with behavior and cognition like opiates. We've known for almost 30 years that food can be absorbed in that form. It's not normal to absorb most of the protein in your diet as an opiate-like compound. You might absorb a little bit, but what has emerged is that perhaps people with autism absorb most of their proteins this way, and it really impairs language and all kinds of things. My personal opinion is it's happening. There's been a pretty good body of research published on it by a number of authors, both documenting the presence of those compounds in the urine of people with autism at a much higher rate, much more frequently, I'll say, than typical people. There's been lots of research on what those compounds do to different cells, et cetera. So I would say it's pretty plausible. You know, I know the medical community, again, they're not really looking at that. And I, I just find that irrational. To me, it's like, wow, well, there's been a number of authors who've put out some pretty good and compelling research on this. So what are we waiting for here? Let's look at it. Let's just like work with it. And personally, I find it astounding because in dealing with a special needs child, if you have anything in your bag of tricks, you want to try it. Sure, especially if it's not going to be harmful. And so why wouldn't the medical community say, hey, try this? You know, and I think people are coming around. I think they are starting to get the information. You've used it a lot in your practice with children? Yes, I've done this for 10-plus years. And it's funny, it's taken me quite a few years to realize that what strikes me as just evidence-based, straightforward information that you can apply A lot of people would rather argue about whether or not we should apply it. They won't even look at the information. There is a bias out there operating that this is flaky or this isn't scientific. I absolutely don't see that. I see a lot of very earnest researchers and clinicians putting out really good information and getting nice results with these kids. So it's a matter of getting the information out more into the mainstream, it sounds like. I think so, and that's why up on my website I did put up a bunch of peer review articles. I know they're not easy reads for parents, but I put them there because so often parents say, oh, my doctor won't support me. He says there's no proof. Well, go to the site, print these out, give them to your doctor, and have a discussion and say to him, look, this looks pretty compelling. What do you think? Let's work with this. I think physicians are busy and they don't have the freedom, perhaps, to review all this information, but there is some really compelling information out there, and I try to put up stuff like that on my website so it's easy to get to. 
Right, and let's mention your website again. It's www.nutritioncare.net. I think what's really difficult for me is when children are nonverbal, if they've always been nonverbal, or if they've always lived with some GI pain, how do they tell you? And how do they even know that it's not the norm? If as far back as their memory goes, they've had pain. One of the things I mention in the book is if you have a child who's nonverbal and is showing self-injurious behavior, absolutely, please do talk to a very open-minded gastroenterologist because there may be pain in the picture. Enough cases have been reported, both adults and kids, find a lot of improvement in that behavior once they get medical care they need for GI pain. And this could be ulcers, this can be impactions, this can be infections with certain bacteria that shouldn't be in the bowel. I mean, we would never deny this care to a person without autism. Why would we deny it to a person with autism? I'd like to ask you two questions. One is, where do parents start? And then two, you know, what have you seen in your own work with these kids? How have you seen improvements? Well, first question, I encourage parents to simply start with their instinct. Moms are pretty much always right, almost all the time. So if you have a sense that your child's diet isn't helpful as it could be or that you have a sense that perhaps some special diet measures might be beneficial, then I would encourage you to indulge that intuition and take it step by step. And in terms of actually applying this stuff in practice, the very first thing that I pay attention to and I talk about in the book is looking at a child's growth status because growth is the canary in the coal mine for kids. It's a very sensitive barometer of whether they're eating an appropriate diet and how they're absorbing it. And even though you might look at your child and say, we look okay, you can use some of these tools in this book to really scrutinize that. I meet kids who have growth impairments all the time, and they may be mild, but in children, that can be enough to really change how they function at school, how they behave, how they sleep. First and foremost, that's number one. And what comes from that is making sure they're getting an adequate diet. Before you begin supplements, before you begin tinkering with lab tests, which are all over the Internet, look at that first. That is the most important thing for a child. And for what I have seen in practice, I've seen some phenomenal turnarounds. I've worked with hundreds of kids over the years, and honestly, there is pretty much no such thing as a kid who doesn't respond to nutrition care because, as I said at the outset, nutrition matters for children. This is why, I mean, we hear platitudes about that in parent magazines and from the pediatrician's waiting room pamphlets or what have you, but it really does matter. So when you put it right for a child, they can function a lot better. I've seen kids leave their autism diagnoses behind. I've seen everything in between where kids will increase and enhance their functional status. They may still have a spectrum diagnosis, but they're doing things they couldn't do. I've seen kids go from being not even ambulatory because they're so unable to absorb a diet that they go from that to walking, going back to school, socializing. These are kids who were facing surgical insertion of gastrotomy tubes. I've pulled kids off gastrotomy tubes. So, I mean, all kinds of things can improve. I've also seen some kids who are really, really intractable. And in those cases, I work to pull in other specialists, referrals, whatever. I really have a leave no stone unturned attitude, just like as we said at the beginning, 
having been through some of this as a parent where you feel no one is helping you, I don't want to leave parents in that position. You're listening to an interview on Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. And it just sounds miraculous what you've managed to achieve with these kids. And what are some of the things you do with the kids? Can you kind of describe for our listeners how you treat? When parents come in, and I also work with kids who don't come in, who can't or don't, I basically do a very standard nutrition assessment process, which is what I was trained to do as a dietitian. So for a child, that means that I really scrutinize their food intake. I quantify it. I get their growth data that's current, and I review all their growth data from birth. I take a medical history that's pretty comprehensive. I also want to know about the pregnancy for the mom and the delivery conditions around that. And if there are labs, many parents will carry labs in with them that have already been done. I look at those. And I really want to know the social context for the child. Where are meals? Who makes meals? What's in the kitchen? I need to know how all that works because if I'm going to kind of get in your world and rearrange what you're eating, which everybody hates, you know, nobody wants their food to be messed with, I need to know the whole story. So we start there. And from there, I build a care plan. And it is driven by everything in that assessment, right down to how many calories your child's going to eat a day, what are the foods going to be, where are you going to buy them, whether or not you're going to add supplements. Most of the time, these kids do need some supplementation, and I send parents links and resources, go buy this or get that. And we just go from there. And I always tell parents this is a process. This is an initial plan. When we get started, it's probably going to need to be changed. And it really varies. I meet kids who have very mild issues going on, and they may come in twice, and they're done. And there's other kids who were failure to thrive and very fragile, and they need ongoing monitoring, say, every eight weeks for a year. So it really varies how much we continue. And parents vary, too, with how much they are involved. It's certainly always wonderful to work with parents, and most of these parents are very motivated and very determined and it's nice to be a partner shoulder to shoulder with them. There's two foods that you most always take out of kids' diet. Is that right? Usually, yeah. It usually ends up being the wheat and the dairy. That is not true for all kids in my practice because not all of them have the more severe ADHD. But most frequently, those appear to be problem foods, and that's based on some lab work usually to illustrate that, yes, your child has, say, chronic inflammation from this food, so we're going to replace it. There are some lab tests I can authorize under my license, and in any case, I do that as an affiliate with another provider who's a naturopath. Or if I can, I will simply ask the child's physician to do it because then that keeps it well within the parent's insurance network. And what do you do with the kids where that's all they eat? I have friends that their child only drinks milk and white food. Yeah, that in itself is a clinical sign that probably something's going wrong. So usually that's driven by some underlying physiological issues that are compelling the child to self-restrict their diet. It's not usually just, okay, I want to be really naughty and drive my mother crazy. It's usually driven by some kind of chemistry underneath that. So when you treat the chemistry, what tends to happen is the diet will naturally self-correct. Kids start to liberate their diet themselves. Well, I can tell you that the kinds of things that usually get in the way of changing a kid's diet in terms of them staying really rigid, if they are not digesting, say, like your friend with the milky diet, 
if that milk protein is being absorbed as that opiate-like peptide, that's why. I mean, that's very, very addicting, and that's the only thing a child will want to eat. And I've certainly seen that many times over in practice. So you do need to withdraw it, and usually I replenish the protein source when I can as free amino acids which are what make proteins, at least in a transitional period. So there's no need to digest and try to break down protein. If the child can tolerate other proteins, I will fully introduce those too. They're going to be refused at first. Children who are, quote, addicted to opiates need to go through withdrawal, unfortunately. And there's some tools that help quicken that process, including replenishing minerals and helping their livers basically detox and get rid of this stuff, making sure that there are no infections in the intestine for bacteria that just don't help you absorb your diet. I mean, we harbor all kinds of bacteria in our intestines to generally, on balance, help us stay healthy, fight out viruses and things, and absorb food. But a lot of these kids have really yucky mixes of bacteria, kind of like a super weed patch garden instead of a nice garden, and the weeds in there are sucking all the nutrients and excreting toxic things. So getting those out of the way helps quicken this whole process as well. Let's say a child who we do a test for the urine for those opiate-like compounds, if those are really high, then really you're only going to get a good response if you completely remove the source of the, quote, opiate compounds. So, yeah, it doesn't work very well to have a little. Are there behaviors that you'll see if a child is addicted to these kinds of foods? Well, when they're eating those foods before, quote, treatment, they tend to have the behavior pattern is very rigid for what they'll eat, a lot of rigidity in general, big behavior outbursts when they're hungry or when they don't get the foods they want. On the other hand, some of these children can be quite placid, almost too placid. In any case, once you withdraw those, usually there's a picture of a lot of irritability for a while. I think these kids can have headaches. They can just feel really uncomfortable for a while. So when parents tell me, oh, my gosh, they'll call a few days later and, you know, all hell's breaking loose in the background on the phone, and that's actually kind of a good sign. Usually that means that the child's working through all this, and in a few more days it will pass. It can take longer, for sure. I have seen that as well, but it does pass. Whatever a parent feels most confident doing, that's what I want to work with. I've learned that if I tell them otherwise, they're not going to listen to me anyway. (laughs) So whatever they feel they can achieve, that's where I want to start and where I want to build from. That's the end of our interview, and I hope you've enjoyed it. For more great health-related interviews, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. That's the end of our interview with Judy Converse. I hope you found this helpful. And for more great interviews on health and nutrition, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com.